This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. A lack of access to new technologies can prevent Indigenous communities from making meaningful connections with the digital world. Hi everyone, I'm Shirley Chowdhury, the host of the Women's Agenda podcast, The Leadership Lessons, supported by Salesforce. My guest today is Cabrigal woman, Michaela Jade, who is the founder and CEO of the groundbreaking tech company in digital. Mick's vision and transformative work is creating meaningful pathways for Indigenous communities to connect with the digital world by pairing storytelling with cutting edge technology. Today, she shares more about her entrepreneurship and the award-winning company she has built that is helping to safeguard Indigenous stories for generations to come. I'd like to start by acknowledging that wherever we both are, we are both on land that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging for their ongoing custodianship of this land over the last millennia. Mick, where are you today? I'm coming to you from Ngunnawal country in very cold Canberra, Shirley. Nice, and I am on Camaragal land in Sydney. Mick, it is such a pleasure to have you here today. I've known you for a few years, but it's so nice to be able to talk to somebody I know on one of these podcasts. It is lovely to have a chat. I'm really looking forward to this, Shirley. Thanks for having me. Me too. Um, Mick, there's so much to talk about, but I want to jump right into the meaty stuff. I was doing my research over the weekend and I looked back to when Women's Agenda nominated you as one of the 11 fearless female founders to watch. And you wrote this lovely article on LinkedIn. And in that article, you said something that really rang true. You said, our true reason for being roars loud when we ignore it, even when we want to steal away from it for those few hours or days of sanity. My journey is not really about the technology. Yes. So what is it about? It's about connecting people to country and connecting older people with younger people through technology and for reconnecting our mobs to our language law and our knowledge about land through technology. And that's exactly where I want to spend uh, this time that we're talking about because I think Indigenous culture and heritage is such a special gift that Indigenous people have given to all of us Uh, through the Uluru Statement, through the general act of sharing, yet so many people don't know enough about it. And so how does your technology connect us with that? Yeah, so we create augmented and mixed reality storytelling opportunities on country, but we now do that through education focus. So we teach kids and teachers and community members to work together to centre themselves around cultural knowledge in the place where they are and then use that as inspiration to create their own augmented and mixed reality storytelling for their place. Okay, so I'm going to stop you there. I know what augmented reality is because I've seen your business card, I've seen you at work, but can you explain in non-tech terms to people what augmented reality is? Definitely. So augmented reality is where we put a digital layer of holograms or other expressions in the real world through your mobile device or through a head-worn technology. So if anyone has played Pokemon Go or they've used a Snapchat filter, they've used augmented reality. So ours is a little bit different because 
it's obviously cultural and incorporates cultural expressions and heritage and language. Um, it's not just a face filter that you pop on Snapchat and uh, take selfies with. So for those people out there who are still kind of not sure what it is, when I first met Mick, I got one of her business cards and the way you read Mick's business card is to put your phone camera app over the business card and it's almost like the card grows behind the camera in 3D. I know that's a really dreadful way to describe it, Mick, but that blew my mind when you gave me your business card. Uh, thank you. Yeah, we worked really hard with traditional owners in Kakadu to develop those first five augmented reality experiences. And that was the first time we were able to really achieve something in 3D. So we've been a little bit obsessed with three-dimensional holographic content ever since then and have regressed it now to a point where we can work with communities to make their own. Yeah, which is incredible. Um, to give this kind of technology to Indigenous communities, I think, is really why your work is so important. But I want to come back there. I want to look for a moment at your own journey. You're an environmental biologist by training and education, and you've done a Master's of Business, and now you're doing a Master's of Cyber... A cybernetics. Uh, no, yeah, no, I just. <laughs> I'm going to stuff that up. So, so um, share with us yeah. a little bit about your kind of the journey inside your head that takes you from school to environmental biology to business to cybernetics and how you went from one to the other. Yeah, sure. So in school, I was a bit of a scallywag, Shirley. Um, I didn't do very well. I actually failed at school, got 36 out of 100. So I think you can count that as bombing out. Isn't that crazy <laughs> though? I mean, and nobody would know today. Like once you finish school, people ask you what your mark is for five minutes and then it's gone. But kids doing the HSC don't realise that. Yeah, we put a lot of pressure on kids. And, you know, I think Einstein captured it best when he said, Something along the lines, if you judge a fish's ability to climb a tree and think it's stupid, then like, I just think school wasn't, it wasn't made for me and people that think like me, I don't like thinking inside a box. So um, that was really hard for me. Uh, I went back to TAFE and did my HSC again and got 89% the second time because I had someone who believed in me um, and she was a staunch environmentalist and she really encouraged this connection that I already felt with country and sort of put me on the path of being a park ranger. Now, I always wanted to be a park ranger by the from year four. I remember planting my first tree with a park ranger that came to our school and just going, that's what I want to do. Um, and, you know, you become a teenager and you lose your way, but I had this amazing adult in my life, Judy Parker, who just focused me back onto environmental studies and I thought, well, I'm really good at the bush. I really enjoy being in remote areas. Uh, my family took me camping everywhere around Australia when I was a kid. Like we didn't do resorts, we did tents. <laughs> so um, then we uh, then I went to uh, continue environmental biology and I actually didn't like the experience at uni, so I didn't quite finish it and I was offered an opportunity to be a park ranger in the Whit Sundays um, during that time. So yeah, it, it was amazing. I was there for eight years and uh, I did have an amazing boss uh, at the time who encouraged me to finish my degree. And I think I pioneered doing remote 
um, environmental biology study by online education back in 2000 because it just wasn't a thing. And, um, yeah, we went through several universities to try and make that happen. I did my final exams on Cape York, so um, <laughs> that was really exciting to have that finished. Um, and I've been in the park service for 21 years, um, so I managed to work around Australia and uh, in that role I was specifically focused on visitor services and looking at the impact of people on place and how do you get people to have a great experience in national parks because the ethos uh, in the park service is if we can get people out there and we can get them to love it, then maybe they'll do more to protect the environment and we can you know, prevent things like catastrophic climate change. So I was in that part of the park service um, where we were making signs and putting them on country and trying to explain what people were seeing and my heart just broke every time we put a metal aluminium sign in the ground in front of these cultural places that were so significant to community that obviously lived there and whose country it was but also to all the visitors that were coming and the signs would say things like this is an Aboriginal site and that would be it or if they wanted they had more funding to get a bit more in depth with the sign they would say this site's 25,000 years old and archaeologists know blah 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 about it and not incorporating the traditional perspectives of the site at all and I, I got really sad at that and in 2012 I was able to see augmented reality for the first time at a university event that I went to and I went home and had a shower and this idea just popped into my head what if we could use this technology where instead of reading a sign when you go to a place, couldn't you just put your phone up and an elder could appear in holographic format and tell you the right story for the right reasons, in the right language, at the right place, at the right time? That story is amazing too because back then we didn't use our phones like we use them today. So that was quite a futuristic way to think. Yeah, it was. And everyone thought I was mad, Shirley. <laughs> <laughs> The other reason I really love that story, Mick, is because you have your best thoughts in the shower. Yes. <laughs> I know what it does something to my brain. I don't know what it is, but, yeah, it's so exciting to have thoughts in the shower. Most people sing, I guess. I, I'm there going, how can we design the future in a better way? Yeah, so that happened and um, it took an enormous amount of trial and tribulation to get our first application built and I had a really teeny amount of money to work with and I thought well bugger this I'm going to get a business loan and just try and put everything I can to achieve this minimum viable product of what's in my head because no one could understand what I was talking about. Did you know what you were doing like you didn't have a tech background so did you know when you sat there to develop the product did you know where did you begin? <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. Um, <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing from a tech perspective like I've seen the tech so I know that it exists and I just did a tremendous amount of stalking on LinkedIn and Google to like work out how do you do this and I managed to, um, I cold called lots of augmented reality pioneers around the world and one Jason Higgins from Harmony, it was called, his company, uh, he said yes that he would help me. Even though I had this tiny amount of money, he could see the vision that I had and he, he spent two years teaching me online how to do augmented reality production. Isn't that incredible? He's the best human. And he said, I'm going to teach you the dark arts of augmented reality. And I was like, oh, I'm in. <laughs> so <laughs> that kind of motivated me um, to get up 
at 11 o'clock at night and spend until sometimes one or two in the morning on Skype calls with him, like designing how we were going to do this. And he taught me everything from uh, how to select objects, how image recognition technologies work, what the camera can actually see and what it can't, how to like three-dimensionally scan an object so it's it's ready for image recognition. And then how do you develop 3D kind of base content um, through a variety of software? So I learned a lot through him and I'm very grateful for his generosity in showing me how to do this. <laughs> I think, isn't that interesting? Because I think in my life, the inflection points for me have always been where people who believed in me saw something in me that I didn't see in myself and they were willing to invest time in me like he was in you. Yes, absolutely. Um, so yeah, that was how I got started. And then we developed our first MVP or minimum viable product in 2014. Um, and I was able to um, show traditional owners in Kakadu where I was living at the time, what this technology was, and they had the ideas about what they wanted to do with it. And this is why I love working with our mobs and new technologies, because we we don't have the education system built into our brains to help us think a certain way about technology. So an example of that was we uh, had to learn how to fly drones because the sites were massive that we were working with in Kakadu and uh, we couldn't do the standard sort of photogrammetry practice, which is taking a, a real-life place and making it into a 3D digital version. Um, we couldn't do that by hand, which was the traditional kind of way of doing it with a camera on a, on a tripod, moving around the site and capturing overlapping images. Um, we decided to do that with a drone. And I remember um, speaking to one of the female TOs up there and I was talking to her about this drone that I wanted to use and she's like, oh, that sounds really good. Can we hop in it? And that's was like, yes, that's Uber Air. Like this is why I love working with our mobs because we're not constrained by certain ways of thinking about technology and that's why the work we do is really exciting, Shirley, because kids get to see it and then they're like, we could do this with it. Can we do this with it? And we're like, sure, let's work out how to do it. Well, yeah, it expand, expands the way you're thinking. I think, too, you, know, you were a recent judge on the Women's Agenda Leadership Awards. And one of the things that we talked about there was looking for leadership in all its guises, right? We're so used to, especially women, I think, we're so used to seeing leadership look a certain way, sound a certain way, be a certain way, because that's what we grew up with. And it still blows our minds when you see leadership in these elders in community or women that walk in a room and don't know how to public speak but have leadership in some other way. Like it can manifest in so many different ways and that's what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I don't think you can really describe what a leader is because there's so many different types of people that are leaders and the types of leadership they demonstrate is like hugely or vastly different. Um, you know, I've had leaders in my life that have been very vocal and forthright and kind of lead from the front. But some of the most influential leaders in my life have been the quiet ones that are sitting at the back of the room and they're leading that room by the way that they move their heads or their facial expressions. So, <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Did you grow up with a particular type of leadership being taught to you or were you told that leadership looked and felt a certain way? Uh, in my school life, yes. So I think every kind of scientist 
uh, that we saw in school when I went to school was a man. <laughs> um, so there wasn't any kind of discussion. I mean, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, Shirley, and these are times where women had to stop working when they were pregnant. Like this, is, <laughs> there wasn't a lot of opportunity to see uh, female leadership when I was growing up at school. But in my home life, my parents were always saying to me, nothing's impossible. Just because we don't know how to do something, it doesn't make it impossible. And I used to say to dad stupid things like, well, we can't roll a ball of string and put it on the moon, dad. And he's like, well, that's not impossible. You just don't know how to do it. So I love that. I love that. And actually, I think the first time I met you, you were with your dad. It was at the um, business awards. And I remember that so clearly, Mick, because you received that award. And I had just talked to you and your dad a few minutes before it was announced. And then I remember this look of complete shock on your face that one you got it and then you went absolutely white thinking that you had to walk up and accept it but I remember your dad really clearly and I imagine he was the type of guy who constantly encouraged you and pushed you and there was nothing you couldn't do in his eyes oh yeah both my parents like that I'm really lucky to have really great parents who always encouraged me and always made me question too so if I had you know if I was you know, when you're a teenager and you get some tunnel vision about an issue, like mine was environmental issues. And they really challenged me to think about other perspectives um, along the environmental continuum and, you know, try and ground me in the realities of like the world as well. Like I, I'm a very idealistic person. Um, and I think I was pigeonholed as being naive when I was in my kind of late teens and early twenties, because I had such an idealistic perspective of how the world should be. Um, and then when I went through, you know, I got, I went through divorce. I tried to take my life when I was 29. Like I hit rock bottom at the end of my twenties. And in my thirties, I really spent this 10 years kind of building myself up into the person that I wanted to be. And I kept that idealism. I made decisions like I'm not going to be angry about the history of my family because it's very important to acknowledge what happened in my family in, in terms of my Aboriginality. But it's also, it's equally important to focus on how I can change that. Like I wanted to be a cycle breaker in that. And I think I've been able to hold fast for 12 years on that now. So I, yeah, I feel happy where I am now. And I think you get into your 40s, don't you, Shirley? And you're just like, I don't Actually. remember my 40s, Nick. <laughs> well, yeah, I think something happened when I turned 40 and I was like, it's okay to be idealistic and you know, be perceived as naive because I know I'm not. Um, I went through and I trained in all the things that I needed to know because a lot of the part of my journey that I've been on, I, there hasn't been someone where I can go, actually, how do you do this? I've had to work it out myself. I agree with all of that. And I think, you know, in all seriousness, I think you do hit a point and for everyone it's different, whether it's in your 30s, your 40s, your 50s or later, um, where you do all of a sudden you see your own value and it doesn't matter. There are always going to be naysayers out there telling you that you're not worthy or you're not good enough, but you do hit a point where you think, you know, I don't need to listen to them anymore. And actually one of my mentors gave me the best piece of advice and he's still a dear friend. Um, and he said to me, you don't have to take all feedback. You look at the perspective from which it's given and the objectivity and whether it's given with love or something else and then you evaluate it that way and that was the best gift he ever gave me. Ah, yes, that is really great advice. I try and do that too. 
It's hard. It's yeah. not the easiest thing to do. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not easy, especially when you choose to ignore it and then something happens and you're like, oh, maybe I should listen to that. <laughs> yeah, are you good at following your gut? Do you, does, do you have a good gut? I do and I believe and I think my, my, most of my mob would say this too, that your first brain is in your gut. So learning to trust your gut as your first brain and then having your the brain that's in your head as your second brain um, is something I've tried to lean into as I've gone on this journey because, yep, it's never wrong. <laughs> no, I love that. I love that. And I think it's only wrong when you don't listen to it properly or you try and change what it's telling you. Yes. <laughs> positive psychology has this term called being in the flow state or in the zone and talking to you and hearing a little more about your story and kind of all the stuff you had to deal with at quite a young age it sounds now like you're in the zone like I've seen you at work and I see the smile on your face and how you absolutely love what you're doing what's your advice on how people find what their zone or their flow is yeah I I think I looked for the flow to start with because when I was doing my business studies, they talk about the flow and they're like, this is like the zone that you need to get in with your business. And all the time I was like, am I in the flow? Am I in the flow now? Is this what it feels like? Um, It's kind of like being in love, right? You don't really know love until you're actually in love and no one can tell you about it. You have to feel it. Yeah. So I think the flow state for me is like, I want to get up and go to work every morning and I love what I do and I work with great people and um yeah so I think I'm I'm in a little bit of the flow and it feels a lot different to when I was thinking that I was in the flow because in business school they teach you that the flow is like attached to the money zone and I think I just let go of all that and I was like okay well I'm studying business so maybe I have to just focus on the funds and um yeah, I think you can get really sidetracked focusing on the funds. Like money is obviously important um, for running a business. And I also, I didn't like that side of business um, to start with because I was confronted by it. And even like my dad runs a business, but we never really talked about business when I was growing up and there was no kind of business school for girls um, growing up. So, and I went into the public service. So to be honest, I didn't have to really think about business for most of my career. Um, But then I started to learn about business and some of the things in business school, I was like, yep, that seems right. Um, Some of it, I thought that actually seems like total crap and I'm not going to follow that way of doing things. So um, we, we do a lot of different things in a digital, like we've grown the company to eight people now, the mostly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander team. We work from home remotely from our country. Um, so it's something that I wanted to achieve. But we're also questioning, like, what does it take to run a business and what does a business look like? I think it's a question that um, a lot of companies are dealing with today, especially post-COVID. You know, it's a given that companies have to make money. Like, without financial return, you can't please your shareholders, shareholders will leave. You can't run a business. There is nothing you can do if you're not making the money to do it. But there is absolutely a way to create a connection between shareholder return and value and impact and purpose. And I think companies miss the opportunity to create that nexus and to bring it all together. You know, community and impact tends to be a bolt-on. Yes. (laughs) And money tends to be at the core of everything you do, whereas to me, if you actually make impact and purpose at the core of everything you do, money will come from it because people will intrinsically love what you do. And McKinsey's done a lot of research into this, and it's true. That's the pathway we've taken, Shirley. Um, 
like obviously we have really stringent financial stuff and we're really good at managing money, which is another thing that we've had to kind of traverse as an Indigenous business because there's a lot of, to be honest, crap out there about Indigenous peoples and our ability to manage money. Um, so we have to work harder to prove that we can actually manage money and we're really good at it. Um, so that's been something as an Indigenous business, it's been something I wasn't really anticipating on having to face, but, you know, we've proven that now. So we're, we're okay on that side. Does that get easier, Mick, as you become more successful and people know who you are and what you do? Um, does that become easier or is that something that because you're an Indigenous business, you have to constantly face? We still face a little bit of that now, but I, like we've got great partners that work with us now and I think people are looking at us and saying, well, if they're investing or they're buying their services, then they must be okay. Um, and Makes it hard for Indigenous companies starting out though, doesn't it? Uh, it's tremendously hard. I actually had to build my company while I was full-time as a park ranger just so I could pay the company's bills out of my salary. Um, so, yeah, it was really really difficult um but we kept going or well, I kept going and then you know we had this amazing team join us over the last 12 months so <laughs> it's kind of all been worth it um but yeah it was it was something that I wasn't expecting like not only am I indigenous woman running a tech company and cutting edge tech from remote communities often I still have to deal with this stuff about biases and perceived biases about our abilities and I think that will always be there to a degree in my lifetime which is really annoying <laughs> but you know as a first generation migrant growing up in this country I know what it's like to take you know curry to school for lunch and then have that be the um the center of bullying or comments or whatever that's just a really minor example but whatever I faced I think was the magnitude of multiples for Indigenous kids growing up in the same environment. And it seems so ridiculous because it's their country. I want to talk about um, product fit. In one of the articles I was reading um, where you were interviewed, you talked about how markets and systems haven't really been created for women. You said 85% of women make the purchasing decisions in households. And yet markets have been developed essentially for men because they were run by men for so long. Talk to us about that. Yeah, well, especially in tech, I think when you look at the statistics or just if let's broaden it out to STEM, the STEM report came out last year and I was pretty horrified to see that 0.05% of STEM graduates were Aboriginal people, not even looking at gender balance in that. Um, so we're, we're a minority of a minority. We probably, yeah, it's very rare to see women in STEM. Um, it's very rare to see Aboriginal women in STEM. So I think something that gets frustrating as a CEO in this area is like if I have a male with me, people still want to talk to the guy about business decisions. That's very annoying. I think the way that we look at how technology is used is very gendered as well. So you know, I've had teachers come up to me recently going, oh, do you do what you do in fashion? Because that's how we're going to get the girls involved. I, I think people still have a very gendered way of looking at how women and girls engage in STEM and in business um, and we're seeing that in our education system still. My daughter last year, she's in year nine, she's really great at computers and she was in computer class and she was one of two girls in that class and she came home and she said, mum, I'm dropping out of computer studies because I feel really uncomfortable there. 
Um, and I said, why do you feel uncomfortable? And she's like, well, there's only two girls and we get all the focus put on us in the classroom um, over the boys and I just feel really uncomfortable. And I was like, oh, my God, I was in year nine when I dropped out of computers. And it took me like 12 years to come back to it. So I was like, please don't drop out. What can we do to help you? Like, And then I tried getting her involved in kind of out-of-school programs that were focused on girls in computing and STEM. Um, and she's done a really great personal project this year in year 10 um, using augmented reality in Minecraft. And she's on Minecraft playing with her uh, friends of an evening. And, yeah, so I think if we can get them over the hump, but we've got to stop this stuff in school about how we get girls involved in STEM has to be a, a gendered way of doing that. How do we get more Indigenous women into this area? Like if it's doubly hard for Indigenous women because their numbers are so underrepresented, how do we get them in? I've got two schools of thought on this and one of them might be a bit controversial. <laughs> I actually think the majority of Indigenous women are already STEM scientists. So we already have the world's oldest living cultures. We already have knowledge systems about environment, about ecosystems, about systems, which is basically what technology is, um, but it's not recognised through a qualification. So what we are underrepresented in is STEM uh, graduation through a Western lens but we're probably very overrepresented in other areas of STEM that aren't formally recognised. So I think we actually have tons and tons and tons of female Indigenous scientists and engineers and technologists and mathematicians are just not getting a university degree. Does that make it any less relevant? Like, No, and how the question then is how can we capitalise on that and how can we bring their skill set into the mainstream? Yeah, I think making it culturally useful um, is a good step too because when coding is introduced for example like I was introduced to python coding um, and it was like here's the way that you learn coding language and it just didn't click into my brain surely I was like I don't know where this language has come from I don't know the kinship of this relate of, of the relationship with the language to other coding languages why are we doing this one but more importantly what is it going to allow me to do if I learn this language like what can I do with it um, so that's why our program's really centered on culture, language and law and saying this is what this technology can do for our cultural expressions. So it's very easy for us to see ourselves in the technology. If we can make technology more relevant to our mobs, we can also get in there and start building some of it, um, not just using it. And we can use our 80,000 years of scientific knowledge and insights to help influence these technology systems because I think we would build them more sustainably. Um, and we would think about technology systems more intimately and in their connection with the planet because a lot of tech, well, the mineral resources that come out of the ground are coming out of first people's countries to build this stuff. And then it's being created on other people's countries through factories. And then we do some, we use it and then we dispose of it somehow. And we're not really involved in any of that decision-making about the life cycle of technologies. We're not involved really in any way in how to design technologies that intersect better between environment, culture, people and, um, and use. I think that's why we need more Indigenous people around the table in all sectors, um, but obviously especially tech because they bring different thinking, they bring different perspectives. 
Talking about your family, Mick, I'm really interested in leadership philosophies and where um, our leadership philosophy comes from. Like, did you wake up one day and realise that you were a leader? Did you plan it and say, I'm going to be a leader and this is how I'm going to do it? Um, And when when you think of what your philosophy is to lead, where do you think it came from? My goodness, that's such a big question, Shelley. Okay, all right. So firstly, no, I did not set out to be a leader. I never thought I had any leadership qualities. I mentioned earlier that I even failed school, so I thought academically I'm not very smart. Um, And, you know, I was kind of a kid that had a small but really tight group of friends and, you know, I just I didn't show any like traditional leadership qualities as I was growing up and didn't believe myself to be a leader. Um, the way that I went about doing things was just seeing a need and going, well, no one else is going to bloody build it so I better start doing something about this and just doing it and learning how to speak about it and learning how to share ideas and learning how to bring other people along and let them influence the outcome of what I was trying to achieve is how I did it. I actually ended up going to a leadership course. Um, So I did the Australian Rural Leadership Program. What that did was shatter every kind of internal shitty dialogue I had about myself and help me rebuild as a human being on this planet that has value to contribute to our community, whether it's at a local, regional, national, international level. So that really prepared me to step up. Um, It kind of got me out of third gear about what I was doing and what I needed and what I wanted to achieve. And it allowed me to step into spaces like in the United Nations in New York and stand up and deliver interventions on digital human rights for Indigenous peoples. So I'm really glad that I had the opportunity to go through that program. I was confronting. People hold a mirror up to you. (laughs) That's not always pleasing. (laughs) They call them gifts. Um, uh, But it was fascinating program and and really it started very locally and by the end of the program we we went to Indonesia and we were able to um you know look at foreign affairs and we we got insights into the political system in Australia and internationally and um it was really really interesting and I I really enjoyed that um and then you know I met someone who joined my company there Joanna Baker so five years later um she was coming for a coffee and I said hey do you want to work with me and um a year later we've built this company it's pretty incredible so you know I met I met some really amazing people in that process and the alumni are fantastic and I guess it's about helping to build networks and believe in what you're doing and knowing how to ask and I got involved in CEO um, two years ago as well and that's really helped me work on my ask muscle (laughs) so learning to ask is really hard right it's because we're all I think we're taught as we grow up to that it's like just do it yourself. Yeah, and there was a real shame stigma associated with asking for help, like you're a dummy if you needed help. Uh, That was a narrative that was taught to me in school, I think, and kind of in my youth, and it's just a lie. (laughs) Like no one does anything alone. Uh, So learning how to ask for things and not being afraid of asking for what we need has been a really a growth thing that I've gone through over the last few years. Um, and 
you know, I learned how to do that the right way as well. It's fantastic. I want to ask you about what you called, I think you called it the shitty self-talk in your head because I think we all struggle with that and we don't talk about it enough. When you hear that voice in your head telling you you can't do it or you're not good enough, what's the process you go through to shut it down? You know, shitty self-talk can put you in a grave if you're not careful. Um, I nearly went there and that was kind of rock bottom for me, Shirley. And once you've been there, you never want to go back. (laughs) And I always try and say to myself, like, firstly, I survived that. Um, Nothing will be that bad ever again. Secondly, my ancestors didn't go through what they went through for me not to get over this or to try harder or to make it work. So, um, and also, also I think the third thing I try and think of is, is this, is this within kind of my locus of influence or is it not? And often like we have really big ethical discussions about, you know, who we'll partner with and who we won't partner with in this journey. And if it's, if we're saying we can do something, but this doesn't feel right, I kind of try and unpack that a little bit and say, is it because what we're trying to do won't actually make a difference or we can't influence it because it's too big? Like where is our locus of influence in this kind of opportunity? And if it's not a hell yes, it's kind of a hell no. (laughs) Mix and my journeys have crossed a number of times over the last few years, so it has been such a pleasure to talk to her as part of the Leadership Lessons. She is an absolute gun and one of those women doing such wonderful work to connect her heritage to a better future for all of us. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope that you've enjoyed hearing from Michaela Jade. I love her strong connection to country and how that comes through in everything that she does. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture is the oldest surviving culture in the world and one that we have all been asked to share in. What an incredible gift that is. If you haven't read it, I would encourage you to read the Uluru Statement from the Heart, a gift from all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to every Australian. It is a very beautiful statement about how we can create a better future for all of us. This episode was produced by Alison Ho, who is my right hand through all of these podcasts. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts and please leave us a rating. I would love to hear from you with your feedback You can contact us via Women's Agenda or me anywhere on social media. Women's Agenda comes out every weekday and you can read it and subscribe at womensagenda.com.au. You too can join the throng of people who wait for it to drop into their mailbox every day. Stay safe, everyone, and see you again next week. Women's Agenda is proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the world's leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.